Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great, too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. When Diplomacy Fails presents... Hello and welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hey guys, welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Welcome to When Diplomacy Fails. Hello and welcome to Hello when Diplomacy Hello and welcome fails. to When Diplomacy Fails. A project five years in the making. The Franco-Prussian War. The Seven Years War. Of the When Diplomacy Fails special on Napoleon. The Crimean War. To When Diplomacy Fails special on World War I. The Dutch Revolt. To the When Diplomacy Fails special on the Thirty Years War. The July Crisis Anniversary Project. The Swedish Deluge. Britain goes to war. The 1916 to the Franco-Dutch War of 1672. This is When Diplomacy Fails, Remastered. This is the first part of When Diplomacy Fails' remastered look at the American Revolution, which was originally aired as one episode on the 13th of July, 2012. Welcome to the podcast. My name is Zach. Here we are with an interesting take on a war which I never thought I would have found interesting five years ago when I covered it. So let's face it, the American Revolution has been done to death as a point in world history. So many accounts, histories and tomes have been dedicated to its major battles, its causes and of course its characters. So why did I choose to visit this era in the first place? For much the same reason as my own insanity will eventually lead me to World War II. Okay, that's actually a joke. Five years ago I gave you my five cents on the era because I found the years leading up to the revolution so fascinating, and I still do. This war was also a critical step towards the destination our pod is heading for in this remastered series, as it did five years ago. The same structure applies in the remaster as it did before, just so you know. While I am mindful that this is a place many have already been, in podcasts, books, and, well, who can forget the Patriot, good old Mel... It should be said that since we've heard those famous battles so many times before, I'll try to include things you may not have known about the war, rather than telling you the same old story. 
This will not be an anti-American rant either, so don't worry, I know we've had enough of them lately. Honestly, if by the end of this you're thinking, oh that was interesting, or hey that's new, then I'll consider it a job done. Just as the Zach five years ago hoped you would, I hope that listening to the episode on America's famous revolution will teach you something new. But before we begin, a little reminder about who I am and why I need your help. You see, this is part of a When Diplomacy Fails remaster project, as of course you know, but what you may have somehow forgotten in the space of time that I haven't told you is that this is a listener-supported podcast, and When Diplomacy Fails is dependent on the goodwill and charity and history-friendness of you listeners. I made this special for you, I always wanted to give you a gift like this because I appreciate you so much, and if the only thing you do after listening to this is tell someone you know about it, then you've done your duty for the day. If, however, you don't tell anyone and hoard it all greedily for yourself, then you are a terrible person. How dare you? Seriously, though, thanks for listening. Thanks for downloading. Thanks for supporting. Thanks for exclaiming how crazy it is that I actually took this mad thing on. But we've been together five years. Some of you have been there since the beginning. Some of you only jumped in even a few weeks or even days ago. Maybe you're only here because you heard about this project, in which case that's great. Welcome on board. We can always find new ways to expand, and it brings me great joy and excitement to know that after this is all done, I may have a great number more history friends on board than I had when I started. That's really the goal. To reach as many people as possible. And yes, it helps me to get more downloads, etc., because the word spreads out there more, and the When Diplomacy Fails brand, if you like, becomes more impressive, because more people buy the t-shirts. Go to wdfpodcast.com to get yours. Wink. But ultimately, the goal is to teach people to get the podcast to as many ears as possible, because there's an awful lot of history stories, and not just stories, but real-life tales that you wouldn't believe, that exist. And honestly, they're not talked about enough. So I'm going to do my job to rectify that. When Diplomacy Fells is all about bringing wars to life. And although the American Revolution has been brought to life many, many times, you'll find lots and lots of wars in our back catalogue that have not been talked about so many times. Hey, such as the one just before this or just after this. So stick around, because if the American Revolution isn't your thing, listen to it anyway. But if it isn't your thing, stick around, because I'm sure there's more that will satisfy you. Okay, okay, so these self-promotion ramblings are sort of a tradition by this stage, but hey, I'm sure you'll be able to put up with a tiny bit of it for the sake of what you are getting. A reminder again, wdfpodcast.com to support us, guys. I appreciate it so much, and I really hope you enjoy this. I, for one, am really excited and happy to bring you all these special, wonderful audio treats. Anyway, I will now take you to the year 1763. By the way, I still love Peter Pan. My first wish is to see this plague of mankind, war, banished from the earth. George Washington 1763 was a year of rebuilding for the nations of Europe. The Seven Years' War had just ravaged the world and the nations on both sides of the war now sought to repair the damage, and in Britain's case, consolidate their newly won territories. 
Britain had benefited immensely from the Seven Years' War. It had acquired vast new territory in Canada and the Mediterranean, and had won a practical monopoly on North America and India. The Seven Years' War made many colonists aware of just how much Britain expected of them, as during the French and Indian Wars, the part-time conflict of the Seven Years' War, Britain seemed consistently indifferent to the conflict raging in North America, a stance which enabled France to achieve numerous victories in that theatre. It wasn't until Britain properly committed to the conflict there that they began to see success. Britain eventually won for itself a virtually unchallenged monopoly over the North American landmass, and the 13 colonies were viewed as the prize that Britain had earned by defeating France and removing French influence from the area with the exception of Louisiana. But this prize was a complicated one. British politicians expected the British subjects living in the 13 colonies to pay in order to alleviate the British war debt, so new taxes were devised for the Americans, and these would achieve a special level of unpopularity in the years to come. But there was also the new, not insignificant idea among British statesmen that American colonists owed Britain for saving it from France. There was a lot of finger-pointing going on after the Seven Years' War, because both believed that the other could have and should have done more. It should also be remembered that the fear of French expansion, one of the key issues which tied the 13 colonies' security to Britain, had been removed following the conclusion of the Seven Years' War. Americans, such as George Washington, saw the pathetic contribution to the French and Indian Wars by London as an example of Britain's apathy towards the 13 colonies. Why should Americans support Britain if Britain only wanted to use the colonists rather than attempt to better their respective situations? Questions such as these flew around in the years following the Seven Years' War, but another issue, that of expansion within America, would drive the wedge between subject and master even further in 1763. On October 7th, 1763, King George III signed the Proclamation of 1763, not very imaginative with the naming. This was a document which was intended to end the costly and bloody conflict occurring daily along the inner borders of the 13 colonies between the American settlers and those of Native American tribes. Land was the major issue, and the conflict itself dates back to the time when English men and women first encroached on Native American land. There are a whole host of fascinating stories that I won't have time to get into here. In the last few episodes, we've seen the American state progress through very different stages of its history. Here, our story involves the earliest days of colonization of the Americas, when English men and women sought a new start in a new world, whether it was because they were a persecuted religious minority, such as Catholics or Quakers, shout out to William Penn, or because they wanted to get away from the cramped and dirty confines of Europe. Many would choose America. This was a strange experience for the Native American populations, many of whom initially did not know how to react to the situation of clothed white men and women suddenly appearing on their lands. Since the late 17th century, it had been a case of constant expansion for the settlers, at the expense of those already inhabiting the lands. But King George III now sought a not unreasonable solution to combat this. He ordered that expansion would not continue by the settlers past the Appalachian Mountains. This proclamation was just one of many of its type that had been issued before, 
and none of those had been enforced, so the colonists thought the same rules applied, but they were wrong. This time, George III, only on the throne less than four years and containing an underrated series of moral principles, was deadly serious about the proclamation. This had two effects on the colonists. First, they were outraged to discover that land that they had fought for and taken from France could not be used, and second, it began to signal the beginnings of rebellious culture in the colonies, as settlers attempted to ignore the proclamation by pushing as far past the border as they dared, often raiding Native American settlements under British protection. Such attacks provoked reprisals from the native tribes, which resulted in protests from the settlers, which caused the local authorities to say, well, you started it, and which then in turn caused a form of resentment to grow between American settlers and British authorities. But this is just one example, and I don't want to generalise or give the impression that every American settler raided Native American lands because they didn't, but certainly it did contribute to the anti-British sentiments, which began creeping into the American psyche. An important thing to remember is what the classes of the 13 colonies looked like around this time. There was the south-eastern coastal region of the continent, known as Tidewater, and then there was the inland region, the frontier of the 13 colonies, known as the Piedmont. The former contained the richer landowners, businessmen, slave traders, and other financially well-off subjects, while the latter was a less well-developed area that was still inhabited by those who could afford to go nowhere else except the war-torn border with the natives. Conservatism and the policies that go with it are normally associated with the wealthy, as those who possess the monopoly on wealth want to maintain the status quo. But that was not so in the case of the 13 colonies, curious statelet that it was. Alan Axelrod, in his book, The Real Story of the American Revolution, noted that the coastal population was also the most directly connected with the rest of the world, including the latest in ideas on philosophy, science, and government. This introduced a strong culture of liberalism, even radicalism, into the Tidewater area. But why is this important, Zach? Well, if you consider that those with most of the wealth hold most of the power and influence, then you can imagine what happens next. If enough wealthy and influential people get behind something, then it's bound to take root. This was true in America as well, but there's more to it than that. The richer population of the Tidewater began to be joined by the previously conservative and anti-Tidewater Piedmont for two reasons. The first was the Proclamation of 1763, which alienated those conservative elements of the population and enabled more radical ideas to grow among the Piedmont. And radical ideas grow a lot faster when you're poor and don't have all that money to comfort you. The second reason was that now, as a result of that radicalization, the Piedmont and the Tidewater held similar political views and similar complaints against their British masters, so it was far easier for them to justify joining together. Additionally, whereas before the Tidewater always viewed loyalty to the British monarch with the utmost importance due to the crown's apparent power, Significant growth in population in the Piedmont during the middle of the 18th century meant that the inhabitants of the region became a more important entity to the Tidewater classes than the crown itself. If you combine this with the fact that both groups began to see that they had more in common with one another, it's not surprising that the Piedmont and Tidewater's various classes moved closer together and in the process 
provided a solid foundation for a movement which would soon erupt on the American mainland. We should not forget that all throughout this time, even with the proclamation of 1763, the former settlers and descendants of settlers who now lived in the 13 colonies did not think of themselves as Americans. Although I refer to them as such, it's more for the sake of my own convenience than anything else. When I use the term American, what I really mean is British or European men and women who happen to live in that portion of the American continent. Make no mistake, had you asked an individual at the time where their loyalties lay, the vast majority would have answered with Britain and its monarch without hesitation or question. They saw themselves as British men and women first, and even when the rebellion began it was not clear-cut as to what an American was. For many, rebellion was merely a solution to the unfair treatment coming from their ancestral home, a response to the restrictions in settling forced upon them by a distant government. But could they really justify turning against it? This ancient, traditional authority? This question created a kind of cultural paradox, as Alan Axelrod explains when he wrote... While protest, let alone outright revolt, seemed like a betrayal of one's very heritage, the colonists were also painfully aware that, while they were expected to be loyal English men and women, they were not being granted the full rights of English subjects. Certainly they are not being treated the same as those Britons who inhabited the home islands, well, at least those who lived in Britain and happened to be Protestant, and this was a status they longed for in the 17th Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. 60s, far more so than absolute sovereignty or questions of legislative independence. So if you were to summarise why a rebellion in America took place, you could use the following points, just to summarise. The Americans' anger towards Britain for not giving them enough support in the Seven Years' War, the clear arrogance of the British directed towards the Americans, the proclamation of 1763 that prevented by law settlers moving out into the great expanse of the West, the emergence of economic and social classes which happened to hold the same ideals close to heart, and the feeling of powerlessness on the American side as they watched politicians across an ocean decide their future and policies without any real say in what went on. Americans wanted to say in their own affairs that much is true, but it goes deeper than that. 
In my view, the real reason why the revolution happened comes down to understanding. The British understood that the 13 colonies existed for the production of raw materials, which would be sent home to Britain to make rich men richer, while the Americans and those who ran these businesses believed they were living in a society which should be equal to that of Britain's. If Britain wanted to point to the reasons why America belonged within the British Empire, they could make a strong case. Its language, customs and religion were by and large identical. The problem was when Americans asked why then, if they shared so much in common, could they not expect the same rights in common as British subjects 3,000 miles away? Why, the colonists asked, are we being treated like a colony when we are British in all but name? These background social points are often overlooked due to what happens in 1765. I'll give you a hint, it involves taxes. The Sugar Act of 1764 and the Stamp Act of 1765 raised taxes and tensions in the 13 colonies, but one should not see taxes as the exclusive reason for the revolution. The American Revolution would not have erupted with as much passion as it did from as many Americans as it did if taxes had been the only issue. All the previous factors that I mentioned created the powder keg which sat underneath the 13 colonies. These new taxes merely lit the fuse. That being said, though, both reasons needed the other. The economic burdens placed on the Americans would not have been so blown out of proportion had there been no underlying resentment from the previous years. But there would also have been no revolution had what was referred to as salutary neglect not been ended by Britain. Salutary neglect was an interesting term which essentially referred to Britain's tacit acceptance of the fact that, in previous centuries, it could not enforce particular taxation or laws on the American colonists. This lax but arguably safe way of ruling one's colonists came to an abrupt end with the Stamp Act. The Stamp Act was the first ever direct tax the Americans had had to endure, but it would not be the last. It soon became not a question of what Britain had done to anger the colonists, but how much further they could go. The Quartering Act of 1765 also added to the American resentment. This made it law that the Americans had to pay for the housing and provisions of the same soldiers, which were going to ensure that the Americans paid their unwanted taxes. It only got worse for the Americans. In trying to pay off the massive British debt incurred from the Seven Years' War, the British government took desperate measures to ensure that the Americans paid. Laws were introduced to reinforce the legitimacy of the taxes levied on the Americans. The penalty for not paying one's taxes involved trial in a court of law. However, while this would have been viewed as an overreaction and caused yet more resentment among the Americans, it was the fine print of the ruling that really grinded their gears. It declared that these courts would not be colonial courts, but vice-admiralty courts, the likes of which answered to the British crown rather than the American population. Had the colonists identified themselves as American at this stage, this would have been a scandalous move, but because they considered themselves British citizens, it was seen as intolerable. Magna Carta had stipulated that no man shall be tried except by the lawful judgment of his peers, peers being the key word. Americans in this case were being tried by mysterious, unknown officials of the British monarchy, not their American peers. Despite their view of themselves as British subjects, then, Britain's most famous document was not being adhered to when it came time for their own judgment. No right was more sacred in English law than the right to trial by jury of one's peers. Violation of this right seemed like a confirmation 
the most blatant one to the American subjects, that Britain did not consider them worthy of such a right, and therefore did not consider them truly British. However, even now we're still a long way off from the Declaration of Independence, folks. Ten years away, in fact. Despite the appearance of the major rebel group, Sons of Liberty, which would eventually lead the American Revolution, few Americans at this stage were willing to argue that the British King and Parliament were attacking their basic human rights, or that those institutions were unfit to rule over them. What was stunningly clear to them, though, was that they were being called upon to act like loyal subjects, even while they were being deprived of the rights granted to those same subjects in Britain. On the 24th of February, 1761, a Boston lawyer, James Otis, made a speech against writs of assistance. These were laws which compelled the cooperation of the colonists with the royal authorities and colonial officers in reducing American citizens' tax violations. Otis eventually lost, put it as he was, against the British business giant Paxton. But before he lost, he managed to utilise a phrase which would later acquire for itself a world-changing status. Taxation without representation, Otis had said, is tyranny. A young American idealist by the name of John Adams happened to be in the courtroom as Otis fought this case. Otis's cry for no taxation without representation became an idea he could not let go of. It was an idea which became more relevant by the late 1760s as more and more taxes were implemented by Britain and Americans struggled to see the justice of it all. It wasn't so much that they had to pay taxes to a group of islands across a vast expanse of ocean, but that they had nothing to show for it. Where was the American voice in the British Parliament? There wasn't one, and if the Americans were giving everything that the British people gave, often many times more besides, how was that fair? The idea that representation in Britain's Parliament was something that the 13 colonies deserved caught on relatively quickly in an atmosphere of unpopular taxes and a faceless authoritarian system. The logistical problems involved in creating a parliament for Americans was outlined by colonial and imperial figures alike. The ocean was the biggest issue. How could Americans ensure adequate representation when they couldn't see what was happening in London? Remember, the fastest news travelled from one side of the ocean to the other was about a month maybe a few weeks if conditions were extremely favourable, so it was immensely impractical to move all American MPs, if they were made to exist, into London, as those in Ireland, for example, would later be made to do. Also, how could such a parliament agree on both American and British affairs, states which naturally had vastly different issues to concern themselves with? How could American, English, Scottish, Irish citizens expect to be fairly proportionally represented. It wouldn't be fair to the British or the Americans. In coming to these conclusions, some Americans would have been horrified by the alternatives, while others would have been excited. If representation in Britain was impossible, then there were two other choices. Continue with the nearly unbearable status quo, or create your own parliament with your own laws, which answered only to people in your own lands. The seeds of revolution were greatly watered by additional laws on taxation. As the apparently oblivious Parliament in London argued for more and more acts to the detriment of the American citizen. The Revenue Act of 1767 added duties and additional taxes on British imports 
and American radicals often linked this with the previous Declaratory Act, which had confirmed the authority of Westminster over the 13 colonies, to create a picture that painted Britain as desiring full control over American affairs, and which removed American liberties for the sake of convenience. It was mostly scaremongering, of course, but the more radical colonists at this time were able to convey their message effectively and capitalise on the strained relationship between colony and master. The governors in all of the 13 colonies responded to the perceived threat by banning all importation of British goods. This would have an adverse effect on the economy of both the British and the 13 colonies. Lawlessness began spreading then as the financial situation in many areas became desperate. Boston, which had been hit especially hard by this ban on goods, became rife with a dangerous rebellious fever and British troops were then sent in. What followed was the Boston Massacre, where British soldiers opened fire on a mob of Americans who began attacking them and the customs house they were guarding. Such behaviour was viewed with embarrassment in London, who knew it looked especially bad to shoot one's own, but it was not the life-changing event in America that you might think. Many Americans believed that the British were within their rights to have fired on the mob, and many more began to resent the non-importation policy that the 13 colonies had for many years been adopting, as it became associated with an unstable society as a result of an unstable economy. With non-importation removed shortly afterwards, it seemed as though the 13 colonies were going to settle down, but such a view was misleading. The Townsend Acts, those which placed numerous duties and tariffs on British and American goods, were dropped in 1770. All of them, that is, except one very important one. As we know, when it came down to it, a hot drink, tea, would change history. Tea was the only item the British retained a tax on, so the 13 colonies boycotted its use, choosing instead to smuggle in their own, a business which was highly lucrative. Meanwhile, the East India Company was struggling desperately to regain the losses it had been making over the previous years. A combination of factors including the non-importation policies had severely weakened its profits, but the one thing that the company did have was a surplus of tea. But since the British market was saturated with the stuff, the 13 colonies was the ideal market. The East India Company was cosy with Lord North, the British Prime Minister since 1770, so the British Parliament cooperated with it and developed the Tea Act, a bill which reduced the cost of tea that would be sold to the 13 colonies. If they made the prices lower than those of the tea that was being smuggled in, surely the 13 colonies would see sense and buy the British tea, the same tea which still contained the only Townsend tax for the 13 colonies. Radicals at this time knew that if such a move were successful, then the boycott of British tea would soon crumble. Since this boycott was perhaps the most unifying thing that the Americans had going, the radicals decided to make a drastic plan, which involved wasting a massive amount of tea. However, it wasn't as simple as reducing the cost of tea and removing the one thing that unified the 13 colonies. By selling tea to only the colonial merchants approved by the British, those who were not approved of, i.e. a large proportion of the American merchants, were left in the cold. This drove the majority of them into the arms of the revolutionaries, who were only too happy to have those merchants on their side. 
These merchants set up committees to help orchestrate their moves across the 13 colonies, and the influence of the radicals began to grow. It became dangerous to one's health to store British tea in the ports of the 13 colonies, and many cities refused to allow the tea to be unloaded or for the ships to enter into the harbour. Many ships began returning to Britain, but for one notable exception, in Boston. While all the other ports and trade centres buckled under the pressure and intimidation of the radicals and their now supporting merchants, Boston held firm. It would allow the ships into port and would also allow the tea to be unloaded. Word began to spread among the population that something was going down and some 7,000 people poured into the streets to see what the commotion was all about. There to greet them was many of the most important revolutionaries, among them Samuel Adams, who upon learning that the attempts to persuade the governor, Thomas Hutchinson, had failed, climbed up a scaffolding and began shouting, This meeting can do no more to save the country. Such an announcement brought on an eerie imitation of the Mohawk war cry as the revolutionaries prepared to make history. That night then, on the 16th of December, 1773, 150 men dressed as Native Americans climbed onto small boats and rowed out to the three large ships anchored there. The operation was conducted with military precision, as all of the ships were boarded at the same time. By the end of their operation, a total of 142 tea chests, valued today at about $1.7 million, were destroyed. Having done their work, the revolutionaries returned to their homes and awaited the reaction of Britain. The British response was drastic and sudden. Despite the sympathies of many Americans with the revolutionaries, mainly because, mainly because what they had done had been so fantastically outrageous, and the existence of many prominent British liberal politicians recommending the removal of all taxes and the end to such tensions between the 13 colonies and Britain, King George III and his conservative ministers hijacked the British response and directed all their frustration at what they perceived to be the cause of the problems. Boston. The state of Massachusetts began to see a number of what were called coercive acts appearing, which demanded that, among other requirements, the port of Boston be closed, the small parliament of Boston would no longer contain elected individuals but royal appointees, the Quartering Act, which had proven so unpopular before, was now developed to include the permanent residence of British soldiers in Boston, and it was insisted that Boston's coffers should fit the bill. But it was George's decision to appoint General Thomas Gage as governor of Boston that would have the most adverse effect on the 13 colonies. Gage's previous career as a soldier in the French and Indian War made him loyal to the crown, but useless at solving local domestic issues. His hard-headedness and inability to listen to reason would cost Britain dearly and, if you want to point to someone as the accelerant of the soon-to-erupt rebellion, I would look no further than this man. In the next episode, we'll see how much of an impact this general gauge made as the tumultuous atmosphere of Boston awaited its punishment with a defiant sense of expectation. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. 
Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.